if we went by the principle that those affected by a problem should be in charge of determining the solution, then the majority of the world's peace negotiators, foreign ministers, and diplomats would be women. Gender. It influences our identity, the role we play in our society, and the way that we interact with each other. The crucial role of women in preventing conflict and building peace has been recognized. Yet over the last 30 years, 70% of peace processes did not include any women mediators or women signatories. So peace, much like war, remains entirely dominated by men. Welcome to Season 6 of the Peace Corner podcast, brought to you by CSPPS, You Know Why Peace Builders, and GPAC. The Youth Thriven podcast, the Peace Corner aims to demystify peace building by giving peace builders across the world the opportunity to share their stories. We showcase the ordinary and extraordinary nature of peace building with the belief that everyone can be a peace builder. We just need to make space. This season explores gender dynamics in peace building. So who are the people making peace buildings more equal, inclusive and relevant? How are these pioneers making gender equality the norm? Keep listening to find out. Today's episode is presented by Yvette from UNOI Peace Builders. Welcome everyone to the Peace Corner podcast. We have a special guest with us today. Henry Martinen has been the Senior Research Officer uh, gender and Peace Building for International Alert, and nowadays is a lead associate at Gender Associations. He has done a lot of work and published extensively on gender masculinity and the LGBTQI plus community in peace building, which we talk a lot about um, today. So welcome, Henry. We're very happy to have you here. Thanks for having me. And then to start the podcast, we would really like to know how did you become involved in the field of gender and peace building? And can you tell us one of the best moments in your career? Great, thanks. Um, well, I came to peace building um, sort of through a bit of a roundabout route. So uh, initially I was studying something very different. I was uh, studying waste management engineering and I was only involved in uh, peace building things more on the side, uh, just as a, I mean, as a hobby. Um, got involved with some solidarity groups working on uh, East Timor at the time, which was under an Indonesian occupation and more broader sort of human rights issues just as, a, as an activist. And kind of over the course of that activism then realized that that's actually what I'm really much more interested in than, than my actual line of work. And luckily then I was able to initially combine the two and sort of then make a transition from the environmental engineering side into the peace building side and as I did that then I was also very fortunate to have some uh, really strong feminist female colleagues uh, that I was working with and they exposed me to some of the gender and peace building literature and what really sparked my interest then at the time um, this was about it's about 20 years ago was that there wasn't really much of an engagement at all with masculinities or men. So men were there as the actors of, of violence, of, of conflict, as soldiers, as refugees, as, as perpetrators and as victims of violence, as uh, refugees, as, as soldiers, as peacekeepers, as peace negotiators. But there was actually very little engagement with the men as men and why the way the men thought about themselves and society expected them to 
them to be men, how that affects conflict and how that affects peace building. So that that kind of really sparked my interest and uh, been trying to sort of go down that route ever since. And I've been thinking about your question about sort of the best moments. Um, it's, it's really difficult to sort of pin down single moments. I think that there's been a lot of small, really beautiful moments of, of engaging with local uh, communities or with with, with uh, different local uh, actors in conflict-affected situations and, and just kind of seeing um, how much understanding there is and also seeing the, the solidarity and compassion between uh, people affected by conflict. And I think, I mean, on the whole, from a work perspective from a career perspective i think the the most satisfying moment moments obviously are the ones when things do go well and, and your work has positive results which is something that um, happens quite rarely um in peace building unfortunately um but there, there have been moments where then then the project you implement then leads to a, a really great result a reduction in violence or or, or uh, a um, rebuilding of bridges within within a community and and that's always a great moment yeah i can imagine that must be really more like perfect moments to see that the work that you do really help and i'm also really happy to hear that there's new perspectives coming into gender and peace building that also highlight masculinity and other perspectives that are really important um so for our podcast, it's also really important that uh, we want to demystify peace building. So to explain what peace builders actually do and why it's so important for the field, um, because a lot of people might not understand that. And therefore, we also wanted to ask you, since our season is on gender, what do you think, um, besides masculinity, of course, needs more demystifying in the topic of gender and peace building? And what do you feel people should really understand about the field to um, yeah, understand its importance? Yeah, I think sort of one of the key things that I've grappled with in working with gender in the peace building field is that a lot of people in the peace building field, um, but also in, in the communities that we work with, may feel that gender is something that's outside of their field of knowledge, that it's this mysterious, difficult to understand black box, or that it's something that is a Western import or, or an imposition from elsewhere. And I think the, the number one thing I, uh, we, we try to demystify in our work is, is that everybody in a way is a gender expert and, and gender is there in everybody's lives, in, in, in every society. And it's not something that's coming from the outside. It's not something we don't know about, but it's something that really is deeply ingrained in ourselves all the time. So any, any person who is, let's say, in, in Colombia knows what the expectations on Colombian men and Colombian women are by having grown up in that culture. And therefore, they are gender experts in their own right, the same way that somebody who's uh, Azeri or Armenian understands what the expectations are on Azeri men or Armenian men, on, um, on Armenian women and Azeri women. So there is that intrinsic understanding of gender in, in all of us. And it's not something that is super complicated. It is, however, kind of the difficulty does come in when, when you do try to then dig up what some of those gendered norms, expectations, um, the, the institutions and symbolisms that are linked to gender roles are, because so many of them are, um, I mean, the, the gender element has been naturalized has been invisibilized throughout the course of 
of generations. So we, we think of it as normal that it is men who pick up weapons and go to war. We think of it as normal that it's women who stay at home and care for the kids, for example. But that, that is not something that comes out of nature or out of biology, but that is something that we as human beings have constructed over the course of history. And, and kind of unearthing sort of those layers of, of how we have built these expectations for different genders at different times. I think that's sort of the difficult thing. But these are things that all of us do understand because that's how we, we live, our, live our lives every day. We are guided by those expectations. We are guided by the institutions. We are guided by the fact that, let's say, the, the police and, and the military are coded masculine, whereas other things like nursing or uh, teaching is currently coded as feminine. Um, and that things like... Uh, even certain foods are seen as more masculine and other foods more as feminine, certain drinks, certain sports. So all of this is something that we really carry within us all the time and, and demystifying that and, and understanding that that is what gender is. That's kind of the key, I think. Yes, I really like that you take locals as gender experts already instead of having this idea that, yeah, it's important. Um, to have a follow-up question on this, how do you work with this knowledge so that you you regard locals already as gender experts and then you have a project, for example, how do you work from that um, base of saying, okay, you're an expert, but how do you work from that point onwards? Yeah, I think that the number one step in peace building always is and always has to be uh, listening and trying to comprehend. And I think that's kind of the duty of anybody who's coming in from the outside is that listening and, and trying to comprehend and trying to understand what is at stake for the different people involved in the conflict and affected by the conflict. I would sort of see my role mostly as being a bit of a, a translator in a sense. So uh, taking that, what, what I hear, taking that, what, what, I, what I try to understand and making sure then with the local partners, with local communities, with local researchers that I'm not misunderstanding it. So there has to be that feedback loop there as well. Um, and then, then translating that into something that makes sense for other international actors, other international audiences. So making or trying to make sure that, for example, um, foreign embassies who support projects in country X understand why certain things happen the way they do in country X because of gender norms or bring together all sorts of information from different societies and trying to sort of compare or, and see what some of the underlying dynamics might be that might help that country X and society in this peace building process by, by drawing on something that's similar and worked in country Y or that didn't work in country Y and that could then be adapted in a better way for country X. So I think that, that that's kind of where I'd see my role mostly as this listener and hopefully an understanding listener um, and then trying to translate that and, and and facilitate conversations with other societies and other actors. Okay, yeah, very interesting. That's very helpful for us to know. Um, also, you have worked with International Alert, which is an independent international peacebuilding organization um, operating programs around the world to address conflict. And during this time, I found that you wrote about rethinking gender and peacebuilding, and also a lot about the relational nature of peacebuilding. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that plays out in conflict and in peacebuilding? Sure. Yeah. So in our uh, in, that, in that piece of research that we mentioned, rethinking gender and peace building, what we try to do is map out some of the ways in which, especially local actors and in, in conflict affected societies, 
are taking gender in, into account in their uh, peace building work um, at different levels, but mostly it was, it was quite sort of community level based initiatives or national initiatives that we were looking at. And kind of the three ways we wanted to look at uh, and, and kind of understand how to do it better and, and what are some of the, the key insights from these projects and processes was to look at how gender can be seen as uh, comprehensively as possible. So not just looking at women and girls, uh, which is something that sometimes tends to be the, the somewhat narrow focus, but looking at men and masculinities, men and boys, but also other gender identities like um, queer, trans identities and so on. Um, but making sure that when you do that, when you do have that broader uh, look at gender, that you don't forget about the needs of women and girls, because that's also an, another danger that uh, we then sort of, by broadening the focus or starting to look at masculinities, we forget that women and girls still are hugely disadvantaged and discriminated against across the planet. So the first uh, thing that we want to was take that comprehensive approach, approach to gender. Then secondly, then kind of go deeper in a sense and look at intersectionality. How, so how does gender interact with expectations of, that are linked to age or socioeconomic class or caste in the case of South Asia, ethno-religious background, disability, sexual orientation, marital status, and so on. Because these different factors then interact with gender, giving different men different positions of power or different positions of vulnerability, giving different women different possibilities for agency and greater vulnerabilities for others, uh, looking at gay, lesbian, intersex, trans individuals and how, again, sort of age, class, education level and so on create different possibilities, but also different dangers and vulnerabilities for them. And then the third element of that was to look at relationality and how gender is then often defined in relation to others and, and how it's co-created by men and women together. So it's not a case of where um, to use the book title of a previously um, popular book, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus, but we're all on the planet in between together. And the way men are expected to be men is something that's co-created by men and women. It's something that men get from other men, from their peers, from, from their fathers, their brothers, their, their comrades in arms, but also something that they get from their mothers, from their wives, from their girlfriends, from their daughters, and so on. And vice versa, femininities and women's possibilities for agency are also defined and constrained not only by themselves or by other women, but also by the men in their lives and the male-dominated institutions. So what we, in, in, kind of in summary, try to do there again is really take that comprehensive approach, look at it, look at gender more deeply in terms of intersectionality, and then in a more complex way, understand how men and women co-create these expectations and also how then they're defined often against each other that uh, what is feminine is defined in relation to what is masculine and vice versa what's homosexual is uh, defined in relationship to what is heterosexual and i think the one key takeaway that we try to do there as well is then try to move away from the sense of gender as a zero-sum game or gender equality as a zero-sum game where there's a because there's often the sense that if men gain something, then women have to lose, or if women gain something, men have to lose, that, that there's the sense that 
let's say, gender equality has gone too far because now women have the say in parliament. That means that we're more of a say in parliament, and that's a loss to men. Moving away from that kind of zero-sum thinking and, and really seeing how it's better for everyone in society when there is a much more diverse and inclusive way of participating. Yes, that's great. And I think also with the introduction of masculinity, you see that more where we say like, okay, it's yeah, beneficial for everyone to work on this, which I think is amazing. Um, do you have some examples for us how you can see that intersectionality within your work um, where you say like, okay, I see that this person has a really different experience because of the intersections that they are uh, uh, inhibiting? Um, yeah, I mean, one of the um, the examples that I, I often use is coming out of some of that research we were doing in Colombia and, and just like thinking about and contrasting the different kinds of people that we were interviewing as, as part of this research. And it's, it's not only in Colombia where you see this, but you see this in every society. But Colombia was where kind of the, the penny dropped for me and just comparing how when we were interviewing uh, middle-class peace builders who were um, university educated, often educated abroad. Many of them were lawyers or, or professors or um, otherwise sort of in society in a relatively comfortable position and were also feminist activists or LGBTI rights activists or working on transforming masculinities. Um, and by doing that in a conflict society, they were at risk of violence. But then when we interviewed some of the other peace activists or uh, gender rights activists, LGBTI rights activists, who were, for example, um, Afro-Colombian descendant trans sex workers or their rural activists in, a, in an area that's dominated by, by paramilitaries or their women's rights activists in, in a place with, with other actors who were violently against women's rights or gender equality, the, the risks that they face, the vulnerabilities that they face, not only for their work, but also in everyday life are just so much greater because of where they are in terms of their socioeconomic class. So they live in slums or they live in the countryside uh, with very little access to security, very little access to uh, basic services. There's much more exposed to direct violence because unlike the middle class, peers, they don't, they're not able to access security in the same sense as richer people are. So here then sort of gender and ethnicity or ethno, uh, religious background, gender and so sexual orientation, gender and gender identity, are they seen as being cisgender or transgender by others? Um, all of these interact to create different levels of vulnerability, different levels of possibilities for agency. And if you have somebody who is well-spoken and university educated um, and is speaking, let's say for gay and trans rights or lesbian rights, they will are more likely to be heard than somebody who is not university educated and is a sex worker and, and comes from the slums or comes from the countryside. So this also creates different possibilities for engaging with official processes, for engaging with the media, for engaging with the rest of society. So I think that that's kind of where, just thinking about the research that we were doing, it really sort of it hit home for me how different these intersectional possibilities and vulnerabilities are. 
to your club when thinking about gender we have to think about girls and women as you said um but how do you think we can include more of a focus on men and diverse sexual orientations and then gender identities into this into peace building and yeah why do you think especially because we also talked a little bit about a men but especially for diverse sexual orientations and gender identities why do you think it is uh, that important um yeah let me start with the men and masculine views first um because i think that's where uh there there's a bit of a a blind spot, also it's a huge blind spot actually, um, in terms of how we think about men and boys as actors in peace building um, or actors in conflict. And if you look at, let's say, UN Security Council documents or, or look at um, other international organizations and they in, are starting to engage with men and boys, a lot of it is coming from um, this, this angle where it seems like this is a new thing, that, that we need to engage with men and boys on gender equality, we need to engage with men and boys on peace building and conflict. These are new actors we haven't dealt with previously, and that is absolutely not the case. Men and boys have been at the center of political decision-making for millennia, tens of millennia. They've been at the center of war. Uh, they've been center at, at the center of peace building. They are at the center of deciding whether or not there is gender equality and rights for women and girls, unfortunately, because we are all living in patriarchal societies. So I think we need to sort of move away from this notion that men and boys have never engaged with gender issues, and men and boys have never engaged with peace building, and we need to bring them in as new actors. We have to instead realize that men and boys are already there, that the institutions that are there for peace building, for example, um, are male-dominated, are very patriarchal by their nature and their ways of working, and, and really sort of start questioning some of those invisible assumptions there. Coming back to what I said previously, a lot of these things are so invisibilized, so naturalized that they seem as if that, that's the way it's always been. But we need to really question and understand how we collectively have constructed them as, as being that way. Why is it that we decided that men have to be in these roles? And what, why do we think that women are not supposed to be in these roles? So I think that's kind of the big challenge for working with men and boys on masculinities is, is visibilizing them. Um, for uh, diverse sexual orientations and gender identities for LGBTIQ plus people, I think there's a different kind of um, invisibilization happening. It's, it's not the invisibilization of power as, as it is in the case with men and boys, masculinities, but it's the invisibilization of these other possibilities of sexual orientations and gender identities. They have largely been completely ignored by peace-building actors, except for local-level peace-building actors in conflict zones. And, and I think that, that that's kind of the, the first big challenge is to highlight that there are very particular needs for uh, diverse persons of diverse sexual orientations and gender identities and very particular risks that they face, which are often much greater than for other civilians, for example, that they face violence not only from armed actors, but also from other civilians as well, including their direct family members. With that visibilization, however, you have to be really careful because of the extreme risk that many of these communities and persons are in conflict-affected situations where kind of an, an outing of their identity might be a death sentence. So it's not something where we can, as a 
external organization or external peace builders go to Syria and say, look at all these people who are now marching under the rainbow flag and are proud of it, because that might very well be a death sentence. And that's not something we've seen across the world. Um, I mean, even this year, for example, in Georgia with the attacks against the, the, the pride march there. So I think that that's a very different sort of set of visibilizations and invisibilizations that we need to work with. And I think, yeah, especially if you work with such populations, I think it's really important to understand um, to do no harm, even if you want to help, that it could be actually backfiring for everyone involved. Um, because you also said something about like the UN and not having this focus on men and masculinity. It's a great, um, yeah, ignorance or sometimes. Um, I wanted to ask, what does the international community, such as donors, international NGOs, development agencies and organizations like that do to amplify the work on gender from local peace builders? Because you also said that they often do work with the LGBTQI plus community already. And in what ways does it actually hamper the development around gender and local peace building now? It's a really good and, and, and complex question because um, I think there is, among some institutions and some nations, there, there really is a willingness to do more and, and to do good in terms of gender equality and peace building. But then there's a, the, the big question is how do you do that without um, squeezing out local voices and, and squeezing out local spaces? And I think in, in terms of, so the, the inter, starting with the international arena, the global level, um, what we've seen over the past, let's say past decade or so, and especially over the past five years, um, has also been a, a very sort of contradictory dynamic happening in terms of the possibilities of working on gender in peace building. Um, on the one hand, there's a group, an increasingly large and diverse group of uh, nations, just to stick with that category for now, uh, of nation states who are really pushing for including gender and peace building and seeing those together and, and really trying to think about it in those more complex ways and taking gender dynamics, gender equality, as a starting point for thinking about how to build a more peaceful society. And there you kind of have sort of the, the so-called usual suspects from the Nordic countries of Canada and so on, but also a lot of global South countries, which are really uh, developing uh, very innovative approaches. And, and that's just the nation states, the civil society in these countries are often even more advanced and, and are really sort of doing fantastic work around this. So on the one hand, we have a lot of new, really exciting, really in-depth work and, and, and thinking around what gender means in peace building happening. At the same time, then we have an unprecedented backlash against anything to do with gender, against the word gender itself, against the concept of gender. Um, and that's something that, that we're really seeing globally. And that's also come into the peace building sphere where previously, for example, at the UN Security Council level, any resolution on women, peace, and security was always unanimous. And there might be some fine tuning here and there around the words, but nobody was really objecting to it. And as of 2018, 2019, 2020, that's become a real battlefield between different countries, between different camps of countries. One, on the one hand, sort of these very, very ultra conservative movements that are also sort of strange bedfellows bringing together um, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Russia, um, during the Trump era, the US as well, were otherwise enemies, but 
work together on this, this issue, uh, and the Vatican as well. And then this group of other progressive countries who are really trying to take these issues seriously. So it's, it's going back and forth a bit sort of in, in terms of that contradictory dynamic. And um, it's difficult to, to predict now which side will win out. I mean, I, I obviously hope that the more progressive views will win and, and there will be more possibilities and, and spaces for this kind of work. So that's kind of about what's happening at the global level. And, and that's often being replicated at the local level as well, at the, at the national level as well, where there are new openings for working on gender and, and working on uh, diverse sexualities and, and, and work combining these with peace building, but then also often a massive and really lethal, in many cases, backlash against those actors. Um, and we can see that in, in Colombia as much as we can see it in Syria or Lebanon or, or in Myanmar at the moment. So, so there's, there is this back and forth in that space. Um, I think what international actors who do want to help need to do is, first of all, kind of coming back to an earlier answer um, on what the nature of peace building is, listen and understand and and. Uh, you mentioned do no harm there, and, and that I think is a really key point that given these conflicts over gender equality and given how that's become politicized and, and weaponized in a sense by some, uh, by various actors, um, we need to be very careful to make sure that if we support women's rights groups, for example, that they're not then labeled as traitors to the nation and killed by extremist groups. That uh, if we support LGBTIQ individuals and communities and organizations, that they don't then find, end up in the crosshairs of, of, of various armed groups or of the state. So I think do no harm is really important. Listening to what the entry points, the possibilities, the needs are, is another really, really key issue. And even though it's something that we've been talking about in the development sector and peace building sector for decades, oftentimes the, the big donors, the big NGOs are really still quite bad at that because we come in from the outside saying, we know what South Sudan needs. We know what Colombia needs. We know what uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan need. Instead of listening and, and trying to understand what is actually needed, what are the actual possibilities and entry points for working on issues. And I think the, the last one is the need for more unbureaucratic support uh, for women's rights organizations, for peace building organizations, for LGBTIQ organizations. On the one hand, I, I do understand the need from donors that they do need to be accountable to the taxpayers. Um, and I also fully aware of how much a lot of the, especially let's say the right-wing media in, let's say the Netherlands or the UK or the US or, or across um, various donor countries is always looking for an excuse to attack any kind of funding that's going into development aid or that's going into gender or peace building projects. So there is that need to show accountability that this is not a waste of taxpayers' money. But oftentimes in conflict situations, those requirements just become absurd, that it's impossible to really fulfill those requirements for receipts for everything or, or having tendering processes if you're in the middle of a, uh, of a full-blown civil war, for example. So I think there needs to be a lot more flexibility there and allowing local actors to do what they do best and, and what they understand best and, and giving them that space to do that instead of us dictating that from the outside. 
Yeah, I think that is a, a perfect way to maybe end this episode and really think about, yeah, how it's important to listen to local actors and to make it so much easier for them to do the work they're already doing. Um, I think that's really important. And I think also, yes, part of the international community, we have a responsibility to, yeah, do no harm and listen better to the organizations that are already doing great work. Well, thank you so much, Henry, for being with us today. I think it was a really, really interesting episode. And I think um, we all learned a lot more about, especially not only the women and girls side of gender, but also how we can make this space a lot bigger to understand a lot more about gender. Um, so thank you very much for being here with us today. And thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us today and for contributing to a better world. Thank you for listening to the Peace Corner podcast and supporting our initiative. Feel free to share this episode with people around you who you think might benefit from it. And don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you might be listening from.